7. Her bare feet, she wandered through the woods, where she found blackberries and wild strawberries, and beautiful ferns, and she wandered on and on, among the rocks and the trees, and over the grass and the flowers, until she sat down by a great tree to rest. Then, without intending anything of the kind, she went fast asleep. She had not slept more than five minutes, before along came a troop of fairies, and you may be assured that they were astonished enough to see a little girl lying fast asleep on the grass, at that time in the morning. Well, I never, said the largest fairy, who was the principal one, nor I, said the next biggest, it's little Bridget, and with such a dirty face, just look, she has been eating blackberries and strawberries and raspberries too, for all I know, for you remember, brother, that a face dirtied with raspberries is very much like one dirtied with strawberries, very like, indeed, brother, said the principal one, and look at her feet, she's been walking in the wet sand, and her hands, cried the very least, what hands, they're all smeared over with mixtures of things, well, said the next biggest, she is certainly a dirty little girl, but what's to be done, done, said the principal one, there is only one thing to be done, and that is to wash her, there can be no doubt about that, all the fairies agreed that nothing could be more sensible than to wash little Bridget, and so they gathered around her, and, with all gentleness, some of them lifted her up and carried her down towards the brook, while the others danced about her, and jumped over her, and hung on to long fur leaves, and scrambled among the bushes, and were as merry as a box full of crickets, when they approached the brook, one of the fairies jumped in to see if the water was warm enough, and the principal one and the next biggest held a consultation, as to how little Bridget should be washed, shall we just souse her in, said the next biggest, I hardly think so, said the principal one, she may not be used to that sort of thing, and she might take cold, it will be best just to lay her down on the bank and wash her there, so little Bridget, who had never opened her eyes all this time and no wonder, for you will find, if you are ever carried by fairies while you are asleep, that they will bear you along so gently that you will never know it, was brought to the brook and laid softly down by the water's edge, then all the fairies set to a work in good earnest, some dipped clover blossoms in the water, and washed and rubbed her mouth and cheeks until there was not a sign left of strawberry or blackberry stain, others gathered fur leaves and soft grass, and washed her little feet until they were as white as lamb's wool, and the very least, who had been the one to carry her hand, now washed it with ever so many morning glory blossomfuls of water and rubbed it dry with soft clean moss, other fairies curled her hair around flower stalks, while some scattered sweet-smelling blossoms about her, until there was never such a sweet, clean, and fragrant little girl in the whole world, and all this time she never opened her eyes, but no wonder, for if you are ever washed by fairies while you are asleep, you will find that you will never know it, when all was done and not a speck of dirt was to be seen anywhere on little Bridget, the fairies took her gently up and carried her to her mother's house, for they knew very well where she lived, there they laid her down on the doorstep, where it was both warm and shady, and they all scampered away as fast as their funny little legs could carry them, it was now about the right time in the morning to get up, and very soon the front door opened and out came Aunt Anne, with a bucket on her arm, which she was going to fill at the well for the purpose of giving little Bridget her morning wash. When Aunt Anne saw the little girl lying on the doorstep she was so astonished that she came very near dropping the bucket. Well, I never, said she, if it isn't little Bridget, and just as clean as a new pin, 
I do declare I believe the sweet innocent has jumped out of bed early, and gone and washed and combed herself, just to save me the trouble. Aunt Anne's voice was nothing like so soft and gentle as a fairy's, and it woke up little Bridget. You lovely dear, cried her aunt. I hadn't the least idea in the world that you were such a smart little thing, and there is no doubt but that you are now old enough to wash and dress yourself, and after this you may do it. So, after that, Bridget washed and dressed herself, and was just as happy as the birds, the butterflies, and flowers. Some novel fishing. Fishing has one great peculiarity which makes it often vastly more interesting than hunting, dining, or many other sports of the kind and that is that you never know exactly what you are going to get. If we fish in waters known to us, we may be pretty sure of what we shall not get, but even in our most familiar creeks and rivers, who can say that the fish which is tugging at our line is certainly a perch, a catfish, or a eel? We know that we shall not pull up a shad or a salmon, but there is always a chance for some of those great prizes which are to be found, by rare good luck, in every river and good-sized stream, a rockfish or striped bass perhaps, or a pike, or enormous chub, but there are some fish which would not only gratify but astonish most of us, if we could be so fortunate as to pull them out of the water, for instance, here are some fish with both their eyes on one side of their heads, these are turbots, and are accounted most excellent eating, they resemble, in their conformation but not in their color, our flounders or flatfish, which some of you may have caught, and many of you have eaten, these fish lie on one side, at the very bottom of the water in which they live, and consequently one eye would be buried in the mud and would be of no use, if they were formed like common fish, but as their enemies and their food must come from above them, they need both their eyes placed so that they can always look upwards, in the picture at the head of this article, you will see some souls lying together at the bottom, these are formed in the same way, they are white on one side, which is always down except when they are swimming about, and a very dark green on the other, so that they can scarcely be distinguished from the mud when they are lying at the bottom. The turbot, however, as you see, is very handsomely spotted, but there are much stranger fish than these flat fellows, and we must take a look at some of them. What would you say if you were to pull up such a fish as this on your hook? This is a hippocampus, or seahorse. He is a little fellow, only a few inches in length, but he is certainly a curiosity with a head and neck very much like those of a horse. He seems to take pleasure in keeping himself in such a position as will enable him to imitate a high-mettled charger to the greatest advantage. He curves his neck and holds up his head in a manner which few horses adopt, unless they are reined up very tightly. I have seen these little fellows in aquariums, and have always regarded them as the most interesting of fishes, but although it is by no means probable that any of us will ever catch a seahorse, We might get even stranger fish upon our hooks, if we had a very large hook, a long and strong line, and a tempting bait. It is just possible, if we were to go to exactly the right spot, and had extraordinary good fortune, that we might catch such a beauty as this. This fellow you will probably recognize as the cuttlefish. Some persons call it the devilfish, but the name is misapplied. The devilfish is a different kind of a sea monster but the cuttlefish is bad enough to have the very worst name that could be bestowed upon him. Those great arms, which sometimes grow to a length of several feet, he uses to wrap around his prey, and they are strong and tough. He has two eyes and a little mouth, and is about as pugnacious a fish as is to be found anywhere. If I should ever haul a cuttlefish into my boat, I think I should feel very much like getting out, 
no matter how deep the water might be. There was once a sea captain, who was walking on a beach with some of his men, when he spied one of these cuttlefish, traveling over the sand towards the water. He thought it would be a fine thing to capture such a strange fish, and he ran after it, and caught hold of one of its legs, but he soon wished that it had got away from him, for the horrid creature turned on him, and wrapped several of its long arms or legs whichever they may be around him, and the poor captain soon began to fear that he himself would not be able to escape, nothing that he could do would loosen the hold of the monster upon him and if it had not been for a sailor who ran up with a hatchet and cut the limbs of the cuttlefish from its body, the poor captain might have perished in the embrace of this most disagreeable of all fishes. There are a great many stories told of this fish, and it is very probable that all the worst ones are true. Canary birds are very fond of pecking at the bones taken from small cuttlefish, and India ink is made from a black substance that it secretes, but I would rather do without canary birds altogether, and never use India ink than to be obliged to catch my own cuttlefish. But while we are hauling strange things up from the deep, suppose we take something that is not exactly a fish, but which is alive and lives in the water. What do you think of a living thing like this? This is a polypeter, and its particular name is the fungia being so called because it resembles a vegetable fungus. The animal lives inside of that circular shell, which is formed something like the underside of a toadstool, between the thin plates, or leaves. The polypeter thrusts out its arms with little suckers at the ends, with these it seizes its food and conveys it to its mouth, which is situated at the center of its body, but there are more strange fish in the sea than we can ever mention, and the strange fish are by no means the most profitable, still there is a pleasure in fishing, no matter what we pull up, the greatest fishers in the world are fish, the whale will catch, in the course of a day, enough herring to last a family for many years and in all the rivers and oceans and lakes. Fishing is going on so constantly and extensively that the efforts of man in that direction seem ridiculous. By contrast, the tunny, a large fish, measuring from two to five feet in ordinary length, is a great fisher. He, like the whale, is fond of herrings, and he likes them fresh, not salt, smoked, or pickled. Often, when the fishermen are busy in their boats, setting their nets for herring, a troop of tunnies will come along and chase the herring in every direction, swallowing every unfortunate fellow that they can catch. Some of the fishers that live in the sea are terrible fellows, and are by no means content with such small game as herring. The swordfish, for instance, always appears to prefer large victims, and he has such strong tastes of that kind, that he has been known to attack ships, driving his long sword clean through the bottom of the vessel, but he generally comes off second best on such occasions for his sword is very often broken off and left sticking fast in the thick hull. The swordfish has a better chance when he attacks a whale, and this he has often been known to do. The whale could probably kill the swordfish, if he could get one good crack at him, but the smaller fish is generally active enough to keep out of the way of harm, while he drives his sword into the whale again and again, until the great creature often perishes from loss of blood. The shark, as you all know, is the most ferocious and dangerous of all the fishers in the sea. He considers anything suitable for a meal which will go into his mouth. He will eagerly snap at a man, a mass, or even a tin coffee pot, or a bandbox. So savage and relentless is this tiger of the sea, as he is sometimes called, that it is gratifying to think that he occasionally goes out fishing and gets caught himself. Many instances have been related of natives of the Pacific Islands, 
who are accustomed to bathe so much in the ocean that they swim almost like fishes themselves, who have successfully given battle to sharks which have pursued them. The shark is unable, from the peculiar formation of his mouth, to seize the man, unless he can turn partially over. Therefore the man takes care to keep below the shark, and a few stabs with his long knife are generally sufficient to finish the combat, and to slay the monster. Still, although it appears so easy to kill a shark in this way, I think it will generally be found preferable to try for some other kind of fish. Let others go seek the shark, the swordfish, or the squirming cuttlefish. Give us the humble perch and the tender trout. Don't you say so, eagles and little girls? Many years ago, among the mountains of Switzerland, an eagle pounced down upon a little girl, and carried her away. Her parents were harvesting in the field, and they did not notice the danger of their little daughter, until the great bird had lifted her up in his talons, and was flying away with her to his nest in the mountain crags. I remember having read all the particulars of this remarkable affair, but I forget whether the child was rescued alive or not. At any rate let us hope that she was. But this incident suggests the following question. Ought little girls to be allowed to play out of doors in countries where there are eagles? Many a child, after looking at such a picture as that upon the opposite page, might reasonably stand in awe of the national bird of our country, but I will state that it is my firm belief that a child runs quite as much risk of being swallowed up by an earthquake as it does of being carried away by an eagle. There have been a few instances where the bald-headed eagle of this country so-called, not because its head is bald, but because it is gray has attacked children. But these cases are very rare indeed. The eagle which carried off the little girl in Switzerland was of a very different kind from the national emblem of America, much more powerful and fierce. But even in Switzerland, if the children all lived until they were carried away by eagles, the country would soon become like one great schoolhouse yard. So, looking at the matter in all its various aspects, I think that we may reasonably conclude that little girls, when they play out of doors, are in more danger from horses, dogs, snakes, and bad company, than of being attacked by eagles, and the children may all look upon the picture of the eagle of the Alps and its baby prey without a shudder on their own account, climbing mountains, there is nothing which can give us grander ideas of nature than to stand on the top of a high mountain, but it is very hard to get there, and yet there are very few mountains in the world which have not been ascended by man, for hundreds of years. Mont Blanc, that lofty peak of the Alps, was considered absolutely inaccessible, but it is now frequently ascended, even ladies, and some of them Americans, have stood upon its summit, but few persons, except those who have actually made the ascent of high and precipitous mountains, have any idea of the dangers and difficulties of the undertaking, the adventurers are obliged to wear shoes studded with strong iron spikes to prevent slipping, they carry long poles with iron points by which they assist themselves up the steep inclines, they are provided with ladders, and very often the whole party fasten themselves together with a long rope, so that if one slips the others may prevent him from falling, where there are steep and lofty precipices, crumbling rocks, and overhanging cliffs, such as those which obstruct the path of the party whose toilsome journey is illustrated in the accompanying engraving, the feat of climbing a mountain is hazardous and difficult enough, but when heights are reached where the rocks are covered with ice, where deep clefts are concealed by a treacherous covering of snow where avalanches threaten the traveler at every step, and where the mountain side often seems as difficult to climb as a pane of glass, the prospect seems as if it ought to uphold the stoutest heart, but some hearts are stouter than we think, and up those icy rocks, 
along the edges of bewildering precipices, over, under, and around great masses of rock, across steep glaciers where every footstep must be made in a hole cut in the ice. Brave men have climbed and crept and gradually and painfully worked their way, until at last they stood proudly on the summit, and gazed around at the vast expanse of mountains, plains, valleys, and forests, spread far and wide beneath them. In Europe there are regular associations or clubs of mountain climbers, which at favorable periods endeavor to make the ascent of lofty and difficult mountains. Nearly every peak of the Pyrenees and the Alps has felt the feet of these adventurers, who take as much delight in their dangerous pursuits as is generally found by the happiest of those who are content with the joys of ordinary altitudes. We have very many grand mountains in our country, but we have not yet reduced their ascent to such a system as that which these alpine clubs have adopted but very many of our countrymen have climbed to the loftiest peaks of the White Mountains, the Catskills, the Alleghenies, and the Rocky Mountains. Mountain climbing is certainly dangerous, and it is about the hardest labor of which man is capable, but the proud satisfaction of standing upon a mountain top repays the climber for all the labor, and makes him forget all the dangers that he has passed through. Andrew's plan. Oh, Andy, said little Jenny Murdoch, I'm so glad you came along this way. I can't get over, can't get over, said Andrew, why, what's the matter, the bridge is gone, said Jenny, when I came across after breakfast it was there, and now it's over on the other side, and how can I get back home, why so an island, said Andrew, it was alright when I came over a little while ago, but old Donald pulls it on the other side every morning after he has driven his cows across, and I don't think he has any right to do it. I expect he thinks the bridge was made for him and his cows. Now I must go down to the big bridge, Andy, and I want you to come with me. I'm afraid to go through all those dark woods by myself, said Jenny, but I can't go. Jenny, said Andrew, it's nearly school time now. Andrew was a Scotch boy, and a fine fellow. He was next to the head of his school, and he was as good at play as he was at his books. Jenny Patterson, his most particular friend was a little girl who lived very near Andrew's home. She had no brothers or sisters, but Andrew had always been as good as a brother to her, and therefore, when she stood by the water's edge that morning, just ready to burst into tears, she thought all her troubles over when she saw Andrew approach. He had always helped her out of her difficulties before, and she saw no reason why he should not do it now. She had crossed the creek in search of wild flowers, and when she wished to return had found the bridge removed as Andrew supposed, by old Donald Mackenzie, who pastured his cows on the side of the creek. The stream was not very wide, nor very deep at its edges, but in the center it was four or five feet deep, and in the spring there was quite a strong current, so that wading across it, either by cattle or men, was quite a difficult undertaking. As for Jenny, she could not get across at all without a bridge, and there was none nearer than the wagon bridge, a mile and a half below. You will go with me. Andy, won't you, said the little girl, and be late to school, said he, I have never been late yet, you know, Jenny, perhaps Dominie Black will think you have been sick, or had to mind the cows, said Jenny, he won't think so unless I tell him, said Andrew, and you know I won't do that, if we were to run all the way, would you be too late, said Jenny, if we were to run all the way to the bridge and I was to run all the way back. I would not get to school till after copy time. I expect every minute to hear the school bell ring, said Andrew. But what can I do, then, said poor little Jenny, 
I can't wait here till school's out, and I don't want to go up to the schoolhouse, for all the boys to laugh at me. Mumber, said Andrew, reflecting very seriously, I must take you home some way or other, it won't do to leave you here, and no matter where you might stay, your mother would be troubled to death about you. Yes, said Jenny, she would think I was drowned. Time pressed, and Jenny's countenance became more and more overcast, but Andrew could think of no way in which he could take the little girl home without being late and losing his standing in the school. It was impossible to get her across the stream at any place nearer than the big bridge. He would not take her that way and make up a false story to account for his lateness at school, and he could not leave her alone or take her with him. What in the world was to be done? While several absurd and impracticable projects were passing through his brain the school bell began to ring, and he must start immediately to reach the schoolhouse in time. And now his anxiety and perplexity became more intense than ever, and Jenny, looking up into his troubled countenance, began to cry. Andrew, who never before had failed to be at the school door before the first tap of the bell, began to despair. Was there nothing to be done? Yes. A happy thought passed through his mind. How strange that he should not have thought of it before. He would ask Dominie Black to let him take Jenny home. What could be more sensible and straightforward than such a plan? Of course the good old schoolmaster gave Andrew the desired permission, and everything ended happily. But the best thing about the whole affair was the lesson that young Scotch boy learned that day. And the lesson was this, when we are puzzling our brains with plans to help ourselves out of our troubles, let us always stop a moment in our planning and try to think if there is not some simple way out of the difficulty, which shall be in every respect perfectly right. If we do that we shall probably find the way, and also find it much more satisfactory as well as easier than any of our ingenious and elaborate plans. The wild ass, if there is any animal in the whole world that receives worse treatment or is held in less esteem than the ordinary jackass, I am very sorry for it, with the exception of a few warm countries where this animal grows to a large size, and is highly valued. The jackass or donkey is everywhere considered a stupid beast, a lazy beast, an obstinate beast, and very often a vicious beast. To liken anyone to a jackass is to use very strong language. In many cases, this character of the donkey with the exception of the stupidity, for very few donkeys are stupid, although they try to seem so is correct, but nevertheless it is doubtful if the animal is much to blame for it. There is every reason to believe that the dullness and laziness of the donkey is owing entirely to his association with man. For proof of this assertion, we have but to consider the ass in his natural state. There can be no reasonable doubt but that the domestic ass is descended from the wild ass of Asia and Africa. For the two animals are so much alike that it would be impossible, by the eye alone, to distinguish the one from the other. But, except in appearance, they differ very much. The tame ass is gentle and generally fond of the society of man, the wild ass is one of the shyest creatures in the world, even when caught it is almost impossible to tame him, the tame ass is slow, plodding, dull, and lazy, the wild ass is as swift as a race horse and as wild as a deer, the best mounted horseman can seldom approach him, and it is generally necessary to send a rifle ball after him, if he is wanted very much, his flesh is considered a great delicacy, which is another difference between him and the tame animal. If any of you were by accident to get near enough to a wild ass to observe him closely, you would be very apt to suppose him to be one of those long-eared fellows which must be beaten and stoned and punched with sticks. If you want to get them into the least bit of a trot, and which always want to stop by the roadside, 
if they see so much as a cabbage leaf or a tempting thistle, but you would find yourself greatly mistaken and astonished when, as soon as this wild creature discovered your presence, he went dashing away, bounding over the gullies and brooks, clipping it over the rocks, scudding over the plains, and disappearing in the distance like a runaway cannonball, and yet if some of these fleet and spirited animals should be captured, and they and their descendants for several generations should be exposed to all sorts of privations and hardships, worked hard as soon as their spirits were broken, fed on mean food and very little of it, beaten, kicked, and abused, exposed to cold climates, to which their nature does not suit them, and treated in every way as our jackasses are generally treated, they would soon become as slow, pokey, and dull as any donkey you ever saw, if we had nothing else. It is very well to have a good ancestry, and no nobleman in Europe is proportionately as well descended as the jackass. Ancient riding. There are a great many different methods by which we can take a ride. When we are very young we are generally very well pleased with what most boys and girls call piggyback riding, and when we get older we delight in horses and carriages, and some of us even take pleasure in the motion of railroad cars. Other methods are not so pleasant. Persons who have tried it say that riding a camel, a little donkey, or a rail, is exceedingly disagreeable until you are used to it, and there are various other styles of progression which are not nearly so comfortable as walking, there were in ancient times contrivances for riding which are at present entirely unknown, except among half-civilized nations, and which must have been exceedingly pleasant, when, for instance, an Egyptian princess wished to take the air, she seated herself in a palanquin, which was nothing but a comfortable chair, with poles at the sides, and her bearers, with the ends of the poles upon their shoulders, bore her gently and easily along, while an attendant with a threefold fan kept the sun from her face and gently fanned her as she rode, such a method of riding must have been very agreeable, for the shoulders of practised walkers impart to the rider a much more elastic and agreeable motion than the best made springs, and, for a well-fed, Lazy princess nothing could have been more charming than to be born thus beneath the waving palm trees, and by the banks of the streams where the lotus blossomed at the water's edge, and the ibis sniffed the cooling breeze, but when the father or brother of the princess wished to ride, especially if it happened to be a time of war, he frequently used a very different vehicle from an easy-going palanquin, he sprang into his war chariot, and his driver lashed the two fiery horses into a gallop while their master aimed his arrows or hurled his javelin at the foe. Riding in these chariots was not a very great luxury, especially to those who were not accustomed to that kind of carriage exercise. There were no seats, nor any springs. The riders were obliged to stand up, and take all the bumps that stones and roots chose to give them, and as they generally drove at full speed, these were doubtless many and hard. There was in general no back to these chariots and a sudden jerk of the horses would shoot the rider out behind, unless he knew how to avoid such accidents. We of the present day would be apt to turn up our noses at these ancient conveyances, but there can be no doubt that the Egyptian princesses and warriors derive just as much pleasure from their palanquins and rough-going war chariots as the ladies of today find in an easy rolling barouche, or the gentlemen in a light buggy and a fast horse. Beautiful bugs. We are not apt I am speaking now of mankind in general to be very fond of bugs. There is a certain prejudice against these little creatures, which island in very many cases, entirely unwarranted. The fact is that most bugs are harmless, and a great many of them are positively beautiful. If we will but take the trouble to look at them properly, and consider their wonderful forms and colors, 
to be sure. Many insects to which we give the general name of bugs are quite destructive in our orchards and gardens, but, for all that, they are only eating their natural food, and although we may be very glad to get rid of our garden bugs as a body, we can have nothing to say against any particular bug. None of them are more to blame than the robins and other birds, which eat our cherries and whatever else we have that they like, and we never call a robin horrid because he destroys our fruit. True. The insects exist in such great numbers that it is absolutely necessary for us to kill as many of them as possible, and it is very fortunate that the robins and blackbirds are of so much benefit to us that we are glad to let them live, but all this should not make us despise the bugs any more than they deserve, particularly as they are just as beautiful as the birds, if we only look at them in the right way. A microscope will reveal beauties in some of the commonest insects which will positively astonish those who have never before studied bugs as they ought to be studied. The most brilliant colors, the most delicate tracery and lace work over the wings and bodies, often the most graceful forms and beautifully contrived limbs and bodies and wing cases and antennae, are to be seen in many bugs when they are placed beneath the glasses of the microscope. But there are insects which do not need the aid of magnifying glasses to show us their beauties. Some of the beetles, especially the large ones, are so gorgeously colored and so richly polished that they are imitated, as closely as art can imitate nature, in precious stones and worn as ornaments. There are few living things more beautiful than a great peel, glittering in resplendent green and gold, and the girl or woman either who will hold one of these in her hand or let it crawl upon her arm while she examines its varied colors, shows a capacity for perceiving and enjoying the beauties of nature that should be envied by those who would dash the pretty creature upon the floor exclaiming, that horrid bug, there are, 